Chapter Seventeen Life in the Clearings versus the Bush by Susanna Moody. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Niagara Come and worship at a shrine reared by hands eternal, where the flashing waters shine and the turf is ever vernal. And nature's everlasting voice for ever cries, Rejoice, rejoice! The night had been one of pouring rain, and the day dawned through a thick veil of misty clouds, on the morning of which we were to start from Toronto to visit the falls of Niagara. It is always so, I thought, as I tried to peer through the dense mist that floated round the spire of St. George's Church in order to read what promise there might lurk behind its grey folds of a fine day. What we most wish for is, for some wise purpose, inscrutable to our narrow vision, generally withheld. But it may clear up after all. At all events, we must bide the chance and make the experiment. By seven o'clock we were on board the Chief Justice, one of the steamers that daily ply between Toronto and Queenstone, a letter that I got, in passing the post-office, from the dear children at home, diverted my thoughts for a long while from the dull sky and the drizzling rain. And when it had been read and re-read and pondered over for some time, and God inwardly thanked for the affection that breathed in every line, and the good news it contained, the unpromising mist had all cleared away, and the sun was casting bright silvery gleams across the broad bosom of the beautiful Ontario. We did not meet with a solitary adventure on our very pleasant voyage. The deep blue autumnal sky and the gently undulating waters forming the chief attraction and giving rise to pleasant trains of thought, till the spirit blended and harmonized with the grand and simple elements that composed the scene. There were no passengers in the ladies' cabin, and we never left the deck of the steamer until she came to her wharf at Queenstone. The lake, for some miles before you reach the entrance of the Niagara River, assumes a yellowish-green tint, quite different from the ordinary deep blue of its waters. This is probably owing to the vast quantity of soil washed down by the rapids from the highlands above. The captain told us that after a storm, such as we had experienced on the preceding night, this appearance, though it always existed, was more apparent. You catch a distant glance of the falls from this part of the lake, but it is only in the shape of a light silvery cloud hovering on the edge of the horizon. We listened in vain for any sound to give us an indication of their near vicinity. The voice of nature was mute. The roar of the great cataract was not distinguishable at that distance. The entrance to the Niagara River is very interesting. You pass between the two strong stone forts, raised for the protection of their respective countries, and a hostile vessel would stand but a small chance of keeping clear from danger in passing either Cerberus. It is devoutly to be hoped that all such difficulties will be avoided, by the opposite shores remaining firm friends and allies. The town of Niagara is a quaint, old-fashioned-looking place, and belongs more to the past than the present of Canada, for it has not made much progress since it ceased to be the capital of the upper province, in spite of its very advantageous and beautiful locality.
As you approach Queenstone, the river is much contracted in its dimensions, and its banks assume a bold and lofty appearance, till they frown down upon the waters in stern and solemn grandeur, and impart a wild, romantic character to the scene, not often found in the upper province. I never beheld any water that resembled the deep green of the Niagara. This may be owing, perhaps, to the immense depth of the river, the colour of the rocks over which it flows, or it may be reflected from the beautiful trees and shrubs that clothe its precipitous banks. But it must strike every person who first gazes upon it as very remarkable. You cannot look down into it, for it is not pellucid, but opaque in its appearance, and runs with a smooth surface more resembling oil than water. The waters of the St. Lawrence are a pale sea-green, and so transparently clean, that you see through them to a great depth. At sunrise and sunset they take all the hues of the opal. The Ottawa is a deep blue. The Autonomie looks black from the dark limestone bed over which it foams and rushes. Our own Moira is of a silvery or leaden hue, but the waters of the Niagara are a bright deep green, and did any painter venture to transfer their singular colour to his canvas, it would be considered extravagant and impossible. The new suspension bridge at Queenstone is a beautiful object from the water. The river here is six hundred feet in width. The space between the two stone towers that support the bridge on either shore is eight hundred and fifty feet. The height above the water, two hundred feet. The towers are not built on the top of the bank, but a platform for each has been quarried out of the steep sides of the precipice, about thirty feet below the edge of the cliffs. The road that leads up from the Queenstone Ferry has been formed by the same process. It is a perilous ascent, and hangs almost over the river, nor is there any sufficient barrier to prevent a skittish horse from plunging from the giddy height into the deep, swift stream below. I should not like to travel this romantic road of a dark October night, even on foot. The Queenstone cab-drivers rattle up and down this fearful path without paying the least regard to the nerves of their passengers. At the entrance to the bridge, a space is quarried out of the bank to allow heavy teams to turn on to the bridge, which is done with the greatest ease and safety. Several heavy-loaded teams were crossing from the other side, and it was curious to watch the horses when they felt the vibratory motion drawing back close to the vehicles, and take high, short steps, as if they apprehended some unknown danger. It is surprising well how they behave on this trying occasion, for a horse, though a very brave animal, is one of the most nervous ones in creation. These beautiful, airy-looking structures are a great triumph of mechanical art over a barrier which had long been considered as insurmountable except by water. The ready mode of communication by which their means has been established between the opposite shores must prove of incalculable advantage to this part of the colony. It is to be hoped that similar bridges will soon span the many rapid rivers in Canada. A sudden spring thaw gives such volume and power to most of the streams that few bridges constructed on the old plan are long able to resist the impetuosity of the current. 
but are constantly liable to be carried away, occasioning great damage in their vicinity. The suspension bridge, by being raised above the possible action of the water, is liable to none of the casualties that operate against the old bridge, whose piers and arches, though formed of solid masonry, are not proof against the powerful battering rams formed by huge blocks of ice and heavy logs of wood, aided by the violent opposing force of the current. The light and graceful proportions of the suspension bridge add a great charm to the beauty of this charming landscape. It is well worth paying a visit to Niagara, if it possessed no object of greater interest in its neighbourhood than these wonderful structures. The village of Queenstone is built at the foot of the hill, and it is a very pretty romantic-looking place. Numerous springs wind like silvery threads along the face of the steep bank above, and wherever the waters find a flat ledge in their downward course, watercresses of the finest quality grow in abundance, the sparkling water gurgling among their juicy leaves and washing them to emerald brightness. Large portions of the cliff are literally covered with them. It was no small matter of surprise to me, when told that the inhabitants made no use of this delicious plant, but laugh at the eagerness with which strangers seek it out. The Queenstone Heights, to the east of the village, are a lofty ridge of land rising three hundred feet above the level of the country below. They are quite as precipitous as the banks of the river. The railroad winds along the face of this magnificent bank. Gigantic trees tower far above your head, and a beautiful, fertile country lies extended at your feet. There, between its rugged banks, winds the glorious river, and, beyond forest and plain, glitters the Ontario against the horizon, like a mimic ocean, blending its blue waters with the azure ocean of heaven. Truly it is a magnificent scene and associated with the most interesting historical events connected with the province. Brock's monument, which you pass on the road, is a melancholy-looking ruin, but by no means a picturesque one, resembling some tall chimney that has been left standing after the house to which it belonged had been burnt down. Some time ago subscriptions were set on foot to collect money to rebuild this monument, but the rock on which it stands is, after all, a more enduring monument to the memory of the hero than any perishable structure raised to commemorate the desperate struggle that terminated on this spot. As long as the heights of Queenstone remain, and the river pours its swift current to mingle with the Ontario, the name of General Brock will be associated with the scene. The noblest tablet on which the deeds of a great man can be engraved is on the heart of his grateful country. Were a new monument erected on this spot to-morrow, it is more than probable that it would share the fate of its predecessor, and some patriotic American would consider it an act of duty to the great republic to dash it out of creation. From Queenstone we took a carriage on to Niagara, a distance of about eight miles, over good roads, and through a pleasant, smiling tract of country. This part of the province might justly be termed the Garden of Canada, and partakes more of the soft and rich character of English scenery. The ground rises and falls in gentle slopes, 
the fine meadows, entirely free from the odious black stumps, are adorned with groups of noble chestnut and black walnut trees, and the peach and apple orchards in full bearing, clustering around the neat homesteads, give to them an appearance of wealth and comfort, which cannot exist for many years to come in more remote districts. The air on these high table-lands is very pure and elastic, and I could not help wishing for some good fairy to remove my little cottage into one of the fair enclosures we passed continually by the roadside, and place it beneath the shade of some of the beautiful trees that adorned every field. Here, for the first time in Canada, I observed hedges of the Canadian thorn, a great improvement on the old snake-fence of rough split timber which prevails all through the colony. What a difference it would make in the aspect of the country if these green hedgerows were in general use! It would take from the savage barrenness given to it by these crooked wooden lines that cross and recross the country in all directions. No object can be less picturesque or more unpleasant to the eye. A new clearing reminds one of a large turnip-field, divided by hurdles into different compartments for the feeding of sheep and cattle. Often, for miles on a stretch, there is scarcely a tree or bush to relieve the blank monotony of these ugly, uncouth partitions of land. Beyond charred stumps and rank weeds, and the uniform belt of forest at the back of the new fields. The Canadian cuts down but rarely plants trees, which circumstance accounts for the blank look of desolation that pervades all new settlements. A few young maples and rock elms planted along the roadsides would, at a very small expense of labour, in a very few years, remedy this ugly feature in the Canadian landscape, and afford a grateful shade to the weary traveller from the scorching heat of the summer sun. In old countries, where landed property often remains for ages in the same family, the present occupants plants and improves for future generations, hoping that his son's sons may enjoy the fruits of his labours, but in a new country like this, where property is constantly changing owners, no one seems to think it worth their while to take any trouble to add to the beauty of a place for the benefit of strangers. Most of our second growth of trees have been planted by the beautiful hand of nature, who, in laying out her cunning work, generally does it in the most advantageous manner, and chance or accident has suffered the trees to remain on the spot from whence they sprung. Trees that grow in open spaces after the forest has been cleared away are as grateful and umbragious as those planted in parks at home. The forest trees seldom possess any great beauty of outline. They run all to the top and throw out few lateral branches. There is not a tree in the woods that could afford the least shelter during a smart shower of rain. They are so closely packed together in these dense forests that a very small amount of foliage for the size and length of the trunk is to be found on any individual tree. One wood is the exact picture of another, the uniformity dreary in the extreme. There are no green vistas to be seen, no grassy glades beneath the bosky oaks on which the deer browse and the gigantic shadows sleep in the sunbeams. A stern array of rugged trunks, a tangled maze of scrubby underbrush, carpeted winter and summer with a thick layer of withered buff leaves, form the general features of a Canadian forest. 
A few flowers force their heads through this thick covering of leaves, and make glad with their beauty the desolate wilderness. But those who look for an Arcadia of fruits and flowers in the backwoods of Canada cannot fail of disappointment. Some localities, it is true, are more favoured than others, especially those sandy tracts of trouble-land that are called plains in this country. The trees are more scattered, and the ground receives the benefit of light and sunshine. Flowers, those precious gifts of God, do not delight in darkness and shade, and this is one great reason why they are so scarce in the woods. I saw more beautiful blossoms waving above the Niagara River from every crevice in its rocky banks than I ever beheld during my long residence in the bush. These lovely children of light seem peculiarly to rejoice in their near vicinity to water, the open space allowed to the wide rivers affording them the air and sunshine denied to them in the close atmosphere of the dense woods. The first sight we caught of the falls of Niagara was from the top of the hill that leads directly to the village. I had been intently examining the rare shrubs and beautiful flowers that grew in an exquisite garden surrounding a very fine mansion on my right hand, perfectly astonished at their luxuriance and the emerald greenness of the turf at that season, which had been one of unprecedented drought, when, on raising my head, the great cataract burst on my sight without any intervening screen, producing an overwhelming sensation in my mind which amounted to pain in its intensity. Yes, the great object of my journey, one of the fondest anticipations of my life, was at length accomplished. And for a moment the blood recoiled back to my heart, and a tremulous thrill ran through my whole frame. I was so bewildered, so taken by surprise, that every feeling was absorbed in the one consciousness that the sublime vision was before me, that I had at last seen Niagara, that it was now mine forever, stereotyped upon my heart by the unerring hand of nature, producing an impression which nothing but madness or idiocy could efface. It was some seconds before I could collect my thoughts or concentrate my attention sufficiently to identify one of its gigantic features. The eye crowds all into one glance, and the eager mind is too much dazzled and intoxicated for minor details. Astonishment and admiration are succeeded by curious examination and enjoyment. But it is impossible to realize this at first. The tumultuous rush of feeling, the excitement occasioned by the grand spectacle, must subside before you can draw a free breath and have time for thought. The American fall was directly opposite, resembling a vast rolling cylinder of light flashing through clouds of silvery mist and casting from it long rays of indescribable brightness. I could never realize in this perfect image of a living and perpetual motion a fall of waters. It always had to my eyes this majestic, solemn, rotary movement, when seen from the bank above. The horseshoe fall is further on to the right, and you only get a side view of it from this point. The falls are to be seen to the least possible advantage from the brow of the steep bank. In looking down upon them, you can form no adequate idea of their volume, height, and grandeur, Yet that first glance can never be effaced. 
you feel a thrilling, triumphant joy, whilst contemplating this masterpiece of nature, this sublime idea of the eternal, this wonderful symbol of the power and strength of the divine architect of the universe. It is as if the great heart of nature were laid bare before you, and you saw and heard all its gigantic throbbings, and watched the current of its stupendous life flowing perpetually forward. I cannot imagine how any one could be disappointed in this august scene, and the singular indifference manifested by others. It is either a miserable affectation of singularity, or a lamentable want of sensibility to the grand and beautiful. The human being who could stand unmoved before the great cataract, and feel no quickening of the pulse, no silent adoration of the heart towards the creator of this wondrous scene, would remain as indifferent and uninspired before the throne of God. Throwing out of the question the romantic locality, the rugged wooded banks, the vast blocks of stone scattered at the edge of the torrent, the magic color of the waters, the overhanging crags, the wild flowers waving from the steep, the glorious hues of the ever-changing rainbow that spans the river, and that soft cloud of silvery brightness forever flowing upward into the clear air, like the prayer of faith ascending from earth to heaven. The enormous magnitude of the waters alone, their curbless power and eternal motion, are sufficient to give rise to feelings of astonishment and admiration such as never were experienced before. Not the least of these sensation is created by the deep roar of the falling torrent that shakes the solid rocks beneath your feet and is repeated by the thousand hidden echoes among those stern, craggy heights. It is impossible for language to convey any adequate idea of the grandeur of the falls when seen from below, either from the deck of the Maid of the Mist, the small steamer that approaches within a few yards of the descending sheet of the Horseshoe Falls, or from the ferry-boat that plies continually between the opposite shores, from the frail little boat dancing like a feather upon the green swelling surges, you perhaps form the best notion of the vastness and magnitude of the descending waters, and of your own helplessness and insignificance. They flow down upon your vision like moving mountains of light, and the shadowy outline of black, mysterious-looking rocks, dimly seen through clouds of driving mist, add a wild sublimity to the scene. While the boat struggles over the curling billows, at times lifted up by the ground-swells from below, the feeling of danger and insecurity is lost in the whirl of waters that surround you. The mind expands with the scene, and you rejoice in the terrific power that threatens to annihilate you and your fairy bark. A visible presence of the majesty of God is before you, and sheltered by His protecting hand, you behold the glorious spectacle and live. The dark forests of pine that form the background to the falls, when seen from above, are entirely lost from the surface of the river and the descending floods seemed to pour down upon you from the skies. The day had turned out as beautiful as heart could wish, and though I felt very much fatigued with the journey, I determined to set all aches and pains at defiance, whilst I remained on this enchanted ground. 
We had just enough time to spare before dinner to walk to the table rock, following the road along the brow of the steep bank. On the way we called in at the curiosity shop, kept by an old grey-haired man, who had made for himself a snug little California by turning all he touched into gold. His stock in trade, consisting of geological specimens from the vicinity of the falls, pebbles, plants, stuffed birds, and sticks cut from the timber that grows along the rocky banks, and twisted into every imaginable shape. The heads of these canes were dexterously carved to imitate snakes, snapping turtles, eagles' heads, and Indian faces. Here the fantastic ends of the roots of shrubs, from which they were made, were cut into grotesque triumvirate of legs and feet. Here a black snake, spotted and coloured to represent the horrid reptile, made you fancy its ugly coils already twisting in abhorrent folds about your hands and arms. There was no end to the old man's imaginative freaks in this department, his wares bearing a proportionate price to the dignity of the location from which they were derived. A vast amount of Indian toys and articles of dress made the museum quite gay with their tawdry ornaments of beads and feathers. It is a pleasant lounging place, and the old man forms one of its chief attractions. Proceeding on to the table-rock, we passed many beautiful gardens, all bearing the same rich tint of verdure, and glowing with fruit and flowers. The showers of spray, rising from the vast natural fountain in the neighbourhood, fill the air with cool and refreshing moisture, which waters these lovely gardens, as the mists did of yore that went up from the face of the earth to water the Garden of Eden." The Horseshoe Fall is much lower than its twin cataract on the American side, but what it loses in height it makes up in power and volume, and the amount of water that is constantly discharged over it. As we approached the table rock, a rainbow of splendid dyes spanned the river, rising from out the driving mist from the American Fall, until it melted into the leaping snowy foam of the great Canadian cataract. There is a strange blending in this scene of beauty and softness, with the magnitude and sublime, a deep sonorous music in the thundering of the mighty floods, as if the spirits of earth and air, united in one solemn choral chant of praise to the Creator, the rocks vibrate to the living harmony, and the shores around seem hurrying forward, as if impelled by the force of the descendant torrent of sound." Yet, within a few yards of all this whirlpool of conflicting elements, the river glides onward as peacefully and gently as if it had not received into its mysterious depth this ever-falling avalanche of foaming waters. Here you enjoy a splendid view of the rapids. Raising your eyes from the green, glassy edge of the falls, you see the mad hubbub of boiling waves rushing with headlong fury down the watery steep to take their final plunge into the mist-covered abyss below. On, on they come, that white-crested phalanx of waves pouring and crowding upon each other in frantic chase. Things of life and light and motion, spirits of the unfathomed ocean, hurrying on with curbless force, like some rash unbridled horse, 
High in air their white crests flinging, And madly to destruction springing. These boiling breakers seem to shout and revel in a wild ecstasy of freedom and power, and you feel inclined to echo their shout and rejoice with them. Yet it is curious to mark how they slacken their mad speed when they reach the ledge of the fall and melt into the icy smoothness of its polished brow, as if conscious of the superior force that is destined to annihilate their identity and dash them into mist and spray. In like manner, the waves of life are hurried into the abyss of death and absorbed in the vast ocean of eternity. Niagara would be shorn of half its wonders, divested of these glorious rapids, which form one of the grandest features in the magnificent scene. We return to our inn, the Clifton House, just in time to save our dinner. Having taken breakfast in Toronto at half past six, We are quite ready to obey the noisy summons of the bell, and follow our sable guide into the eating room. The Clifton House is a large, handsome building, directly fronting the falls. It is fitted up in a very superior style, and contains ample accommodations for a great number of visitors. It had been very full during the summer months, but a great many persons had left during the preceding week. which I considered a very fortunate circumstance for those who, like myself, came to see instead of to be seen. The charges for a Canadian hotel are high, but of course you are expected to pay something extra at a place of such general resort, and for the grand view of the falls, which can be enjoyed at any moment by stepping into the handsome balcony into which the saloon opens, and which runs the whole length of the side and front of the house. The former commands a full view of the American, the latter of the horseshoe fall, and the high French windows of this elegantly furnished apartment give you the opportunity of enjoying both. You pay four dollars a day for your board and bed. This does not include wine, and every little extra is an additional charge. Children and servants are rated at half price, and a baby is charged a dollar a day. This item in the family program is something new in the bill of charges at a hotel in this country, for these small gentry, though they give a great deal of trouble to their lawful owners, are always entertained gratis at inns and on board steamboats. The room in which dinner was served could have accommodated with ease treble the number of guests. A large party, chiefly of Americans, sat down to table. The dishes are not served on the table, a bill of fare is laid by every plate, and you call for what you please. This arrangement, which saves a deal of trouble, seemed very distasteful to a gentleman near us, to whom the sight of good cheer must have been almost as pleasant as eating it, for he muttered half aloud that he hated these new fangled ways, that he liked to see what he was going to eat, that he did not choose to be put off with kickshaws. That he did not understand the French names for dishes. He was not French, and he thought that they might be written in plain English. I was very much of the same opinion, and found myself nearly in the same predicament, with the grumbler at my left hand, but I did not betray my ignorance by venturing a remark. This brought forcibly to mind a story that had recently been told me by a dear primitive old lady, a daughter of one of the first Dutch settlers in the upper province. 
over which I had laughed very heartily at the time, and now it served as an illustration of my own case. "'You know, my dear,' said an old Mrs. C., "'that I went lately to New York to visit a nephew of mine, whom I had not seen from a boy.' Well, he has grown into a very great man since those days, and is now one of the wealthiest merchants in the city. I never had been inside such a grandly furnished house before. We know nothing of the great world in Canada, or how the rich people live in such places as New York. Ours are all bread and butter doings when compared with their grand fixings. I saw and heard a great many things such as I never dreamed of before. and of which for the life of me i could not understand but i never let on one morning at luncheon my nephew says to me auntie c you have never tasted our new york cider i will order up some on purpose to see how you like it the servant brought up several large-necked bottles on a real silver tray and placed them on the table good lord thinks i these are queer-looking cider bottles perhaps it's champagne and he wants to get up a laugh against me before all these strange people. I had never seen or tasted champagne in all my life, though there's a lot of it sold in Canada, and our head folks give champagne breakfasts and champagne dinners. But I had heard how it acted, and how, when you drew the corks from the bottles, they went pop-pop. So I just listened a bit and held my tongue. And the first bounce it gave I cried out, Mr. R., You may call that cider in New York, but we call it champagne in Canada. Do you get champagne in Canada, Auntie? says he, stopping and looking at me straight in the face. Oh, don't we? says I. And it's a great deal better than your New York cider. He looked mortified, I tell you, and the company all laughed, and I drank off my glass of champagne as bold as you please, as if I had been used to it all my life. When you are away from home and find yourself ignorant of a thing or two, never let others into the secret. Watch and wait, and you'll find it out by and by. Not having been used to French dishes during my long sojourn in Canada, I was glad to take the old lady's advice and make use of my eyes and ears before I ordered my own supplies. It would have done Mrs. Stowe's heart good to have seen the fine corps. Of well dressed negro waiters who served the tables, most of whom were runaway slaves from the States. The perfect ease and dexterity with which they supplied the guests, without making a single mistake out of such a variety of dishes, was well worthy of notice. It gave me pleasure to watch the quickness of all their motions, the politeness with which they received so many complicated orders, and the noiseless celerity with which they were performed. This cost them no effort, but seemed natural to them. There were a dozen of these blacks in attendance, all of them young, and some, in spite of their dark colouring, handsome, intelligent looking men. The master of the hotel was eloquent in their praise, and said that they far surpassed the whites in the neat and elegant manner in which they laid out a table, that he scarcely knew what he would do without them. I found myself guilty of violating Lord Chesterfield's rules of politeness while watching a group of eaters who sat opposite to me at table. The celerity with which they dispatched their dinner, and yet contrived to taste of everything contained in the bill of fare, was really wonderful. To them it was a serious matter of business. They never lifted their eyes from their plates 
or spoke a word beyond ordering fresh supplies during feeding time. One long ringletted lady in particular attracted my notice, for she did more justice to the creature comforts than all the rest. The last course, including the dessert, was served at table, and she helped herself to such quantities of pudding, pie, preserves, custard, ice, and fruit, that such a medley of rich things I never before saw heaped upon one plate. Some of these articles she never tasted, but she seemed determined to secure to herself a portion of all, and to get as much as she could for her money. I wish nature had not given me such a quick perception of the ridiculous, such a perverse inclination to laugh in the wrong place, for though one cannot help deriving from it a wicked enjoyment, it is a very troublesome gift, and very difficult to conceal. So I turned my face resolutely from contemplating the doings of the long ringletted lady, and entered into conversation with an old gentleman from the States, a genuine Yankee, whom I found a very agreeable and intelligent companion, willing to exchange, with manly, independent courtesy, the treasures of his own mind with another. And I listened to his account of American schools and public institutions with great interest. His party consisted of a young and very delicate-looking lady, and a smart, active little boy of five years of age. These, I concluded, were a daughter and grandson, from the striking likeness that existed between the child and the old man. The lady, he said, was in bad health. The boy was hearty and wide awake. After dinner, the company separated, some to visit objects of interest in the neighborhood, others to the saloon and the balcony. I preferred a seat in the latter, and, ensconcing myself in the depth of a large comfortable rocking-chair, which was placed fronting the falls, I gave up my whole heart and soul to the contemplation of their glorious beauty. I was roused from a state, almost bordering on idolatry, by a lady remarking to another who was standing beside her, that she considered the falls a great humbug, that there was more fuss made about them than they deserved, that she was satisfied with having seen them once, and that she never wished to see them again. I was not the least surprised, on turning my head, to behold in the speaker the long ringletted lady. A gentleman to whom I told these remarks laughed heartily. That reminds me of a miller's wife, who came from Black Rock near Buffalo last summer to see the falls. After standing here and looking at them for some minutes, she drawled through her nose, "'Well, I declare, is that all? And have I come eighteen miles to look at you? I might have spared myself the expense and trouble. My husband's mill-dam is as good a sight. Only it's just not as high.' This lady would certainly have echoed the sublime sentiment expressed by our friend, the poet. Oh, what a glorious place for washing sheep Niagara would be! In the evening my husband hired a cab, and we drove to see the upper suspension bridge. The road our driver took was very narrow, and close to the edge of the frightful precipice that forms at this place the bank of the river, which runs more than two hundred feet below. The cabman, we soon discovered, was not a member of the Temperance Society. He was very much intoxicated, and like Jehu, the son of Nimshi, he drove furiously. I felt very timid and nervous. 
Sickness makes us sad cowards, and what the mind enjoys in health becomes an object of fear when it is enfeebled and unstrung by bodily weakness. My dear husband guessed my feelings, and placed himself in such a manner as to hide from my sight the danger to which we were exposed by our careless driver. In spite of the many picturesque beauties in our road, I felt greatly relieved when we drove up to the bridge, and our short journey was accomplished. The suspension bridge on which we now stood, surveying from its dizzying height, two hundred and thirty feet above the water, the stream below, seems to demand from us a greater amount of interest than the one at Queenstone, from the fact of its having been the first experiment of its kind ever made in this country, a grand and successful effort of mechanical genius over obstacles that appeared insurmountable. The river is two hundred feet wider here than at Queenstone, and the bridge is of much larger dimensions. The height of the stone tower that supports it on the American side is sixty-eight feet, and of the wooden tower on the Canadian shore fifty feet. The number of cables for the bridge is sixteen, of strands in each cable six hundred, of strands in the ferry cable thirty-seven, the diameter of which is seven-eighths of an inch. The ultimate tension is six thousand five hundred tons, and the capacity of the bridge five hundred. A passage across is thrillingly exciting. The depth of the river below the bridge is two hundred and fifty feet, and the water partakes more largely of that singular deep green at this spot than I had remarked elsewhere. The American stage crossed the bridge as we were leaving it, and the horses seemed to feel the same mysterious dread which I have before described. A great number of strong wooden posts that support the towers take greatly from the elegance of this bridge. But I am told that these will shortly be removed, and their place supplied by a stone tower and buttresses. We returned by another and less dangerous route to the Clifton House, just in time to witness a glorious autumnal sunset. The west was a flood of molten gold, fretted with crimson clouds. The great horseshoe fall caught every tint of the glowing heavens, and looked like a vast sheet of flame, the mist rising from it like a wreath of red and violet-coloured smoke. This glorious sight, contrasted by the dark pine woods and frowning cliffs, which were thrown into deep shade, presented a spectacle of such surpassing beauty and grandeur that it could only be appreciated by those who witnessed it. Any attempt to describe it must prove a failure. I stood chained to the spot, mute with admiration, till the sunset behind the trees, and the last rays of light faded from the horizon. And still the thought, uppermost in my mind, was, who could feel disappointed at a scene like this? Can the wide world supply such another? The removal of all the ugly mills along its shores would improve it, perhaps, and add the one charm it wants, by being hemmed in by tasteless buildings, the sublimity of solitude. Oh, for one hour alone with nature, and her great masterpiece, Niagara! What solemn converse would the soul hold with its creator at such a shrine, and the busy hum of practical life would not mar with its jarring discord this grand thunder of the waters. Realities are unmanageable things in some hands, and the Americans are gravely contemplating making their sublime fall into a motive power for turning machinery. Ye gods, what next will the love of gain suggest to these gold-worshippers? 
the whole earth should enter into a protest against such an act of sacrilege, such a shameless desecration of one of the noblest works of God. Niagara belongs to no particular nation or people. It is an inheritance bequeathed by the great author to all mankind, an altar raised by his own almighty hand, at which all true worshippers must bow the knee in solemn adoration. I trust that these free glad waters will assert their own rights and dash into mist and spray any attempt made to infringe their glorious liberty. But the bell is ringing for tea, and I must smother my indignation with the reflection that sufficient for the day is the evil thereof. A Freak of Fancy I had a dream of ocean in stern and stormy pride, With terrible commotion dark thundering came the tide. High on the groaning shore upsprang the wreathed spray, Tremendous was the roar of the angry echoing bay. Old Neptune's snowy coursers unbridled trod the main, And o'er the foaming waters plunged on in mad disdain. The furious surges boiling roll mountains in their path, Beneath their white hooves coiling they spurn them in their wrath. The moon at full was streaming through rack and thundercloud, Like the last pale taper gleaming on coffin, pall, and shroud. The winds were fiercely wreaking their vengeance on the wave, A hoarse dirge wildly shrieking o'er each uncoffined grave. I started from my pillow, the moon was riding high, The wind scarce heaved a billow beneath that cloudless sky. I looked from earth to heaven, and blessed the tranquil beam, My trembling heart had striven with the tempest of a dream. End of chapter 17